Well, good morning, family. Good to see you all on this very, very cold, snowy day. Uh, maybe not snowy yet. I haven't been outside in a few hours, but it's supposed to be shortly. Uh, days like this remind me why uh, 30, what's it been, 38 years ago when Janet and I moved here, we came here for just two years. That was all we were going to stay. We're Texas people, and this doesn't happen in Texas. We're planting flowers in February, uh, but it's your fault that we're still here because we found that uh, we just couldn't leave uh, this church. You guys are such awesome folks and have become our family. Uh, welcome you folks at home, too. Uh, more of you at home, I think, than usual this day. We understand that. I invite you to take your Bibles open to uh, the book of First Samuel. As we continue our journey through this book of First Samuel, looking particularly at the life of Samuel, truly one of the most remarkable men uh, in the pages of Scripture. Are your fingers warm enough where you can actually open those, turn those pages? I hope so. I knew it was cold this morning when I saw Pastor Aaron came in licking his coffee on a stick. <laughs> It was cool. Anyway, uh, let's pray as we open the word. Father, thank you so much. We've sung this morning of your uh, amazing love for us. Hallelujah to you, the one who has set us free. Father, we, we are grateful for your grace. Grateful for the opportunity to gather as the, as the family uh, in person and virtually, to fellowship together around uh, worship, to fellowship together around your word. I pray as we open it this morning that you would speak to us, that your spirit would illuminate your word in our hearts, that we might not miss what you have for us. And Father, that we would respond to you this morning and take your word and put it into practice in our life. guide the tongue of this stammering preacher, that I might be faithful to speak your truth. As we ask in Jesus' name, amen. How do you get God on your side? That's a question I think many people have from time to time, particularly when they have a big problem, perhaps some a health crisis or some mess in their life and they wonder, how can I get God to help me? As we open here in First Samuel chapter 7 this morning, I think that's a big question probably on the minds of a number of the Israelites. They're wondering, how do we get God on our side there's a tendency for many people to live life on their own terms, to live life focused on what they want with little regards for little regard for God until they crash and burn. Then things may change. That's really the situation of Israel that we have seen as we began the book 
coming out of the period of the judges where every man did what was right in his own eyes, we find that as this book of Samuel opens, that the people of Israel have been giving religious nods to God. They've been going through the motions, doing religious things, but they really have no heart for God. They live ungodly and immoral lives. And then, as we saw in chapter 4, the Philistines attacked. And they were badly beaten. And then they, as they pondered their loss and licking their wounds, they realized that they lost because God was not with them. God was not helping them. And then in an act of sheer folly, rather than talk to God, they sought to manipulate God and get Him on their side by going and grabbing the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle, carrying it into battle with them, and thought that surely now God will help us. This will get His power and His help. But we saw that instead of God helping them and leading them to victory, that God allowed the Philistines to deal the Israelites a devastating blow. The Philistines won the war and the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, was taken captive by the Philistines. Then last week in chapter 5 and 6, we saw how God then sent plagues on the Philistines until they decided that they really didn't want God's Ark anymore. And so they, they were tired of the hemorrhoids and the panic and the death that came with it, and they sent it back to Israel. They realized that this God of Israel was not to be trifled with. That brings us here to chapter 7 and verse 1. Follow along. I hope you have your Bibles open and as I read. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. The Israelites have the ark of God back. It's in their possession. And they move it. Uh, as we saw last week, it was in Beth Shemesh. They move it now to Kiriath-Jerim where it stays in the care of a man named Abinadab. That's really all we know about him is what you read right there. It will stay, just a little side note, because it doesn't tell us here, but if you read and you will discover that the ark stays there in Abinadab's house for some 80 plus years, some 80 to 100 years, remains there until King David over in 2 Samuel chapter 6 comes and takes it from there to Jerusalem. That's just a little footnote. You might wonder, though, why did they take the Ark of the Covenant there to Kiriath-Jerim instead of taking it back to Shiloh, where we recall earlier in the book, Shiloh is where the tabernacle was, and the Ark of the Covenant belongs in the, holy, the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, inside the holy place, inside the tabernacle. Why didn't they take it there? And you can study your Bible, if you would, and go through and look carefully. And what you'll discover is it never tells you. All we can do is guess. 
One thing that archaeology has discovered is that Shiloh was destroyed about this time. And so most likely what happened was that back in chapter 4 when the Philistines deal this devastating defeat to Israel and they capture the ark, likely their army just marched on from that battlefield up to Shiloh, which was the de facto capital of Israel, and they leveled the city destroy it what happened to the tabernacle you may wonder that's a whole nother subject the answer is we don't know it disappears for a while doesn't show up till knob but that's another story let's get back to the text verse 2 from the day that the ark was lodged at kiriath jerim a long time passed some 20 years and all the house of israel lamented after the lord Twenty years go by, and may I say it was probably a very long twenty years, because life in Israel wasn't great. You see, the Philistines had sent the ark back because God had terrified them. They were terrified of Israel's God, of Yahweh God, but they weren't afraid of Israel. After all, God had let Israel get beaten. God wanted the ark back. You know, He didn't want them to have the ark. They gladly sent it back. But He didn't mind them beating up on Israel. And so they had been doing that. Then they defeated them soundly in the war. And they just continue to do that. And so for all of His 20 years since that war, they have continued to be the bully on the block. They have superior military power and they... They just basically do whatever they want to Israel. They, they have taken over a number of Israelite cities. They have taken over a, a sections of Israelite territory. And they just go through the land and pretty much do whatever they want. Life is not good in Israel. Now finally, after 20 years, the people of Israel wake up and they look around at the ruins of their nation. And it says here, they lament after the Lord. They know that they are in this mess because they have been alienated from God. And now they want change. May I say many of you can testify you have been through this in your own life or you have watched it in the life of a loved one or a friend. Ignore God. Run from God. Rebel against God. Because of your rebellion against God, you move into a mess in your life. And you move from that mess in your life to a deeper mess in your life. And you move from that one to a huger mess in your life. Until one day you're sitting in the midst of the ruins. (laughs) And you're sitting there. You know that you're there because you have rebelled against God. And you still sit there. And it's not until finally you get so sick of it all that you say, okay, God, I realize I need to change. Something's got to change here. I'm ready to come back to you. Have any of you been there? You don't have to raise your hand. But I know. The solution for us is the same as it was for Israel. And it begins when we stop asking the wrong question. 
The wrong question is, how do we get God on our side? We need to stop asking that question and start asking the right question. You see, the the right question is, how do we get right with God? The problem with the first question is, the first question is all about going our way, living life on our terms, looking and hoping to find some way to get God to come around where He agrees with us about how life should be. Looking for some way to maybe manipulate God, to get Him to do what we want Him to do, and God doesn't play that game. If you haven't learned that yet, you will. Because God will make sure you learn that lesson. The second question rather focuses on getting in a right relationship with God and connecting with His purposes and with His desires and with His plans for our life. Two very different questions. And the Israelites have just gotten to the place of coming around to asking the right question as they lament after God. And now after disappearing off the pages of our story for over 20 years, Samuel comes back on the scene. Samuel is going to lead the people of Israel back into a right relationship with God. And we're going to see that here as we go through this chapter this morning. And and as we do, what I want us to notice this morning is four key elements. Four key elements that answer this question. How do we get right with God? We'll see it illustrated in Israel in this chapter. Verse 3, And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of of the Philistines. Samuel, now coming back to the scene, addressing the nation, says, if you really are lamenting after the Lord, if you are ready to return to the Lord with all your heart, and do you detect a little skepticism there? I think rightly so. Samuel has seen his fill of people who who have religion, people who you know, who go through the motions, who play the game, but have no heart for God. And so he's a little skeptical. If you are really returning with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods. If you're returning to the Lord, that word returning, by the way, indicates a change of direction. If you return somewhere, it means you were there, you've gone a different direction, and now you're going to go back. Getting right with God requires, we might say this, repentance. That's the word to turn, to turn and go the opposite way. Stop going the way you were going and now instead turn to the Lord. Samuel is a little skeptical because a lot of people are sorry, deeply sorry that their life is a mess, this this situation is a mess, it's because of what they've been doing. They, they are hurting. They have hurt other people. And they, be, they may be terribly sorry about the mess they're in, but yet not ready to change at all. Not ready to abandon what got them there and follow God. But Samuel says, if you're serious 
Put away your idols. Then turn away from the foreign gods and the asterisk. That's one of the gods. Turn away from those gods that aren't God. The Israelites wanted God's help. And they've wanted God's help probably for over 20 years. And they claim to be God's people. And yet all the time, even through this, they've always claimed to be God's people. We're Jews. We're the Israelites. We're the people of God. We are His chosen people. And all the while they do that, they have been worshiping and desiring and serving and loving other gods. Even though God had clearly, very specifically said in the first two of the Ten Commandments, You shall have no other gods before me. And he said, you shall not make for yourselves an idol or a graven image patterned after anything in heaven or on earth. Don't do it. No idols, no other gods. And yet the Israelites have embraced other gods. By the way, idols are just substitutes for God. Anything that we trust anything that we honor, anything that we serve, anything that we love in place of God or more than God. And the Jews had adopted idols of wood, idols of stone, idols of metals from their Canaanite neighbors. They had adopted the gods their neighbors had. Gods, by the way, that had to do with, they were all about Wealth and prosperity and party and sexual immorality. And those were attractive to them just as they are attractive to people today. Matter of fact, we have lots of attractive idols today available to us. Money, wealth, possessions, sports, pleasures, popularity, social status relationships, people. The message here is, if you're serious about getting right with God, first thing to do here, repent. Turn away from other gods in your life and turn to follow God only. Verse 4, So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth And they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. Samuel, I think, was a little surprised. The people actually are serious. Seeing that they they were sincere, that they really put away all the other gods. I think there was a massive movement. People went home and they started grabbing the idols off the shelves and out of the little nooks and, and out from the front lawn and down on the street corner and wherever they were and burning them, tossing them, getting rid of them, cleansing the land of these idols, and most importantly, cleansing them from their their heart. Samuel sees that they do have repentant hearts. And so he says, meet me at a place called Mizpah. So it's somewhere there in Israel, probably just a little north of present-day Jerusalem. Verse 6. And so they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people at Mizpah. The people came from all over Israel 
probably by the tens of thousands, maybe the hundreds of thousands, maybe a couple, 300,000 people. We really don't know. But if this was a national movement, it should be a number like that. And it was a national movement. They gathered here at Mizpah and they confessed their sins against God. We have sinned against the Lord. There's the second essential thing. If you're going to get right with God, it involves confession of sin. It says here that they poured out water, probably as a sign of their sorrow, that we're pouring out water representing the, our tears. We, we, are, we are crying out to you, God. We're sorry. And it says they fasted. If you can imagine these people coming from all over the nation, they don't need the food trucks because they're, they're fasting. Why fast? It's because it's, the message of the fast is this is a big deal. Our sin is a big deal and we need to get this right with God. And so we're showing that, that this is a big deal to us. It's more important than anything else. And that's illustrated by the fact it's more important than food because for most of us, food is pretty important. So when we're willing to say, I'm not going to eat, we're not going to eat, it says something. You know, the Bible encourages us to confess our sins. Psalm 32 says this, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. We kept silent. He's saying, he's talking about his sin. I kept silent about my sin. I just kept it bottled up. I didn't address it. I just left it there in my life. It says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Selah. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Several things. There's a tendency for you and I to just let sin sit there in our life. It's a very difficult thing for us to come and to admit, yeah, I'm wrong. I blew it, God. I hurt you. I hurt others. You know... By the way, if you're a child of God, God doesn't just let you live in sin. God is a good father, the Bible tells us. And He, like a good dad, will discipline us. Hebrews chapter 13. He'll discipline us. says, by the way, if God doesn't discipline you, you've got to worry because maybe you're not a child. Because I I didn't discipline my neighbor's kids, but I disciplined mine. God disciplines the children He loves. He won't let you keep going in sin. And the writer of the psalm here says that when I kept silent about my sin, when I just let it sit there in my life and I just lived on in sin, He says, your hand was heavy on me. Until finally, I couldn't take it anymore. And when I gave it up, when I acknowledged my sin, when I quit trying to hide it, you forgave me. We confess our sins. When we confess them to God, it's not to inform Him about our sin. So He goes, I didn't know you did that. Our sin doesn't doesn't surprise God. He knows everything, obviously. 
So why do we confess our sins? It's not to inform God. It's to, it's to agree with God. It's to own up to our sin. It's to own it. Say, God, I did that. Fess up, as the old saying goes. I did it, and I deserve, I deserve what I get. To agree with God that this is wrong, it is hurtful, it's offensive. And to say, God, what I need really is your grace. Would you forgive me? And of course, 1 John 1, 9 says, If we'll confess our sins, He is faithful, He's just. He will forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the people of Israel have gathered. They have repented of their sin. They have confessed their sin before the Lord. And then a most amazing, interesting thing happens. The Israelites are here. They are gathered in Mizpah. Again, perhaps a couple hundred thousand of them are there confessing before the Lord, looking to get right with God. They're having church, or we might think church camp, because they're camped out, I imagine, most of them. While they're focusing on God, something else is going on. Down the mountains, out towards, going towards the coast, down to the south, down in the land of Philistia, something's going on. Some of their spies, some of their people had have been aware of what's going on, that all these people are gathering up there in Mizpah. They come back down to the lords, the kings, the Philistines. They say, there's this huge gathering in Mizpah. Look, verse 7. Now the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered in Mizpah, and the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. When the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. When the Philistines hear about this gathering, what they in their minds they're thinking... Whoa, a couple of hundred, hundred thousand Israelites getting together, this can only mean one thing. They are about to revolt against us. They're about to have a rebellion. They're going to come. They're going to try to throw off our, uh, the, our oppression of them. We're going to lose our domination of these folks. And so there's only one thing to do. We're going to launch a preemptive strike. Before they can do anything, we're going to, we're going to hit them. By the way, may I say that you will often discover that whenever you start to get serious with God, When you say, I'm going to do business with God, you will find that very often some trouble, some problem will come up and slap you in the face. The Bible tells us that we have an enemy and our enemy never wants anyone to get right with God. And I'm sure he is behind many attempts to distract or discourage people who are in the process of turning to God. The Philistines start to come against the Israelites. The Israelites are there. They're having church. Everything is going great. This is just awesome as they are getting right with God. They're enjoying worshiping together. And word comes. The Philistines are on their way. There's a massive army and they are mad. Okay, it doesn't say that in the text, but there's a, they're coming. When the Israelites hear about the approaching Philistine army, it says that they are afraid of the Philistines. Understandably so. These folks have been oppressing them for years. The last time they met in battle, they beat them severely. 
the Israelites traveled here at the word of Samuel and they came for a camp meeting. They came for church. They didn't come for war. I think you pack differently for those two things. They are sitting ducks. What will they do? Notice their response, verse 8. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. For you and me to be right with God. Going back to that question, how do we get right with God? For you and me to be right with God, one thing the Bible tells us is that God calls for us to trust Him. To believe in Him. To have faith in Him. To trust Him to save us from our sins. To trust Him with our problems To trust Him with our worries and our fears. To trust Him with our anxieties. To trust Him with our needs. To trust Him with our dreams. To trust Him with our hopes. To trust Him with our future. To trust His Word and to follow His commands and to obey what He says. To trust Him. Whether it's easy or difficult, trust Him. Whether it's improbable, Or it looks impossible. Trust Him. Twenty years earlier, these Israelites trusted their own military strength and their own ingenuity, and it failed. There was disaster. Then they tried, as we mentioned earlier, they tried to manipulate God, superstitiously trusting the ark to save them. If you go back and read the words they said, they said, let us bring the ark of the covenant that it may save us. They trusted all kinds of stuff, but they never trusted God. Now the Philistines are coming. The Israelites are afraid. But this is remarkable because they don't run for the hills. I have a feeling if we just got word that some army is coming for us here this morning, right here, We probably have a very brief little amen, God bless you, and we would run. That's my normal reaction. But the Israelites don't run. There's an army coming at them, and they're not ready. They're not prepared. They don't run. Matter of fact, they don't even say, okay, everybody stay calm. Uh, Would all the leaders please go to the exits and we're going to have a brief meeting of the elders and devise some battle strategy, some defensive strategy. That doesn't happen. What does it say they do? Look, it says, The people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us. Samuel, don't stop praying. Don't stop the church service here. Don't stop praying and start praying that God will save us. I think that's remarkable. You pray to the Lord that it says He may save us. It's taken 20 years, but now they realized that they simply need to believe God and trust Him, period. So nobody moves. 
Samuel, you keep going. You pray for us that God will save us. The Philistines keep marching. And the people of Israel just keep believing. Samuel keeps praying. Verse 9. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. The Israelites here needed a priest, an intermediary, someone to pray to God on their behalf. They are not right with God. They are out of relationship with God. And they needed a priest, someone to come in, to be their advocate, to go to God and speak on their behalf, as Samuel does here. They also needed a sacrifice. Samuel comes and offers a lamb as a sacrifice because in order for these people to be right with God, they need a sacrifice to cover for their sin. You see, as Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Sin is a death penalty. Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, it is ultimately, it is hell. Sin needs to be paid for and the payment for sin is death. It is blood. And God in His great wisdom... In this time of the Old Testament, God put into place both the priesthood, the need to have someone to to intercede, to step up on the behalf of the sinner, and the need for the sacrifice, the sacrifice of blood, both of these as temporary measures, as it were, as illustrations, as shadows, as pictures of what was going to come. What was going to come was the the ultimate solution, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate sacrifice for sin. And the priests and the sacrifices in the Old Testament looked forward to what was going to come that was going to really be what would meet our need. Of course, what they were pointing to, we know, is Jesus. Jesus came to be our sacrifice for sin. That's why John the baptizer, when he first saw Jesus, John chapter 1, he says... Behold, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, says that we have been sanctified, we've been made right with God through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus fully, one sacrifice, paid for all sins in His sacrifice on the cross for us. That is why we don't come here and offer sacrifices, animal sacrifices to the Lord. There is no need to. Jesus has paid the price for sin. And today we don't need a human priest to come and pray for us, to intercede on our behalf before God. We don't need that because Jesus came to be our priest whole bunch of passages in the book of Hebrews we could go to on this, but we'll just go one. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. 
What we discover as you read there in Hebrews is that Jesus is there in heaven today interceding, praying for us on our behalf. In fact, with Jesus as our high priest, we can now go directly to God with our needs, with our concerns. As it says just a verse later than that, it says in verse 16 of Hebrews 4, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is good news. To be right with God, we need a sacrifice and we need a priest. Good news, God has already provided it. God has provided that through Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus today, we don't need to come and offer sacrifices. We don't need to find a priest. What we do need to do is trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And then we can talk to God through Him. That's awesome. Well, there's the four things we need if we're going to be right with God. We need, we need repentance. We need confession. We need to trust, to believe God. We need to receive the sacrifice He's made for our sins through Jesus. Now, the climax of the story, though, comes here in verse 10. It's after my main points. So the rest of this is appendix to the sermon. Verse 10, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as beth The Philistines drew close to the Israelites as they were there at Mizpah. And as the worship service was coming to an end, the Philistines prepared to attack. Suddenly, God intervenes with this mighty thundering sound from heaven. Whatever it was, it so disoriented the Philistines, they couldn't attack. And actually, they ended up being just easy pickings for the Israelites who just come and just take on the Philistines and defeat them badly. And the Philistines turn tail and run. And it pursues, they pursue them as far as Beth Carr, however far that is, because we don't know where it is. The Israelites... Actually, the Israelites didn't. The Lord won a decisive victory for the Israelites that day. I know I said I had four points, but I've actually got a a bonus point, okay? Because it's not about how do we get right with God. But I find it here in the next verse, verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and he called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. There on the battlefield where that victory was won, Samuel now goes and erects a stone as a monument. And he calls it Ebenezer, which means the stone of help. And he puts it there to always be a reminder that God helped us to this point. God helped us. He got us here. He got us to this place of victory. And by the way, He'll help us in the future if we trust Him. If you remember back to chapter 4, the first battle they lost so badly, it says, was at Ebenezer. I think it's the same place. At the time of that battle, it wasn't called Ebenezer. When this is being written, after the fact, it's saying, well, how do we identify the battlefield? Well, it's Ebenezer, because that's what everybody calls it now. This is where God helped us now. The fifth point 
isn't about how we get right with it, God, but it does, it's a point about how to help us stay right with God. One of the things I think we need is we need monuments. We need things to remind us of those places where God has intervened in our life and God has helped us. We need reminders of when it was that we came to know Jesus as our Savior. We need reminders about that time that God helped us with this problem, that God healed our son or daughter of this, or that God took us through this crisis, and that God delivered us from this. And we need those little monuments, those little reminders in our life. If you don't, if you're not commemorating some of those things, I think it, you should probably we should start doing that. So we go back and we then we look back and we see, oh, God did that, God did that, God did that. And what it does is reminds us, I can trust God in the future. When things get tough or when I get tempted to wander and stray away from God, I'll remember, how could I do that? Look at what God has been doing in my life till now. And I wonder what he's going to do in the future. You see, hitherto, God has helped us. God has helped us to this point. By the way, freebie, if you ever sing that old hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, and you make it to verse whatever it is, three, where it says, you know, uh, Here I raise mine Ebenezer. Thou hast brought, brought us to this place. That's where this comes from. If you don't know that, or you've been singing that song all your life but never paid attention, grab a hymn, they'll go to that and read and go, oh, 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 Why do we sing things and never wonder what do they mean? Well, one last thing. We've got to have the epilogue here. The end of the story, verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not enter into the territory of Israel again. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistine all the days of Samuel. And the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel all in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. This revival, in this chapter, it, it began, it ushered in a period of peace and blessing in Israel. The Philistines leave the Israelites alone. They are not going to go back there for a good long while. And so do their other neighbors. Peace. Samuel serves as judge, as leader in Israel. And as long as he's leading, people follow the Lord. God made promises to Israel, very specific here, that if Israel would obey God, if they would follow him, they would have material blessings, they would experience they would have peace, they would be it would be wonderful. But if they wouldn't follow God, things would go south quickly. And you see that all through their history. Now those promises to the nation of Israel were not made to you and me. They weren't made to the United States. They weren't made to uh, other countries, other peoples. So the reality is 
When you and I as believers in Christ live in right relation to God, there is no promise in the Bible that we will have lives that are free from problems and sufferings and difficulties. Unfortunately, there are some folks who are Christians that really think that if I live right as a Christian, I won't have problems. That is not what the Word of God says. We don't have time to go there this morning. But I will say this. What the Bible does promise to those of us who follow Christ, who live in right relationship with God, it does promise that there will be blessings in our life. Wonderful blessings from God. Now, it may not be money, it may not be health, it may not be a lot of things, but there will be blessings. It does promise that we will have joy and peace. Joy and peace that supersede, that transcend our circumstances. Whether our circumstances are good or bad, the joy and peace that God gives is greater than those. It does promise that if we trust Jesus as our Savior, we have life forevermore. That is the glories and joys of heaven. And it promises that if we live following God, that there are eternal rewards, treasures that last forever. Those are promises from God we can count on. Now, all of that this morning, we've talked about how do you get right with God? There it is. And it comes really a question, are you right with God? That's something to sit and ponder for a bit. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your love for us. In Your grace, You sought out sinners. That's every one of us. And in Your grace, You paid for our sins through the blood of Jesus upon the cross of Calvary. In Your grace, You offer to us forgiveness, new life, and eternal life if we simply trust in Him. Father, if there's someone here that's never trusted in Jesus, it's that simple. It comes along with repentance and confession. For those of us who are believers in Christ, the reality is that every one of us, sooner or later, there are times we take little detours. We follow idols. We go our own way. How do we get back in right relation with You? We're already Your children We're saved through Jesus, but we need to confess, we need to repent so we live in right relation with You. Father, if if we need to do some business this morning, here here in the church, here at, at home, those watching, may we take advantage of this time and these moments as we close and get right with You. In Jesus' name, Amen.